0: Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of The Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Coronatools.com, the nation's leader in garden and landscaping tools. Listeners of The Organic View can receive 20% off their CoronaTools.com purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more promotional offers, please visit our website at www.TheOrganicView.com. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Over the last decade, the North American hummingbird population has been declining. Are they suffering from the same pesticides which are impacting our honeybees? On today's show, Dr. Christine Bishop is going to talk about her latest research focused on North American hummingbirds. So I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Christine Bishop. Good afternoon, Dr. Bishop, and welcome to the show. Hello there. Could you please share a little bit about yourself as well as your previous research?
1: I work for Environment and Climate Change Canada. I'm a research scientist with them, and I've been working... In the area of wildlife toxicology and occurrence of uh, the effects of environmental contaminants on birds, amphibians, and reptiles since uh, 1989. I also now, in the last 11 years, particularly specialized on species that are listed, endangered, or threatened, or species that are starting to decline and that might eventually get listed. And that's one of the triggers for our research. This time around is that um, the rufus hummingbird, which is a species that occurs on the west coast of the United States and Canada, have been showing declines in their population, whereas some other species of hummingbirds, most other species of hummingbirds, are actually showing an increase. And for your American listeners, we're interested in rufous hummingbirds because their the geographic range is one of the core of its breeding ranges, actually, in British Columbia, but other species that are related to the Rupus hummingbirds are also showing some declines, such as the Allen's hummingbird and um the broad tail hummingbird, and they occur only in the United States, uh, in their breeding range anyway.
0: Thank you. Who else was involved with this study?
1: Well, one of our important collaborators in this uh project was the Rocky Point Bird Observatory out of uh, Victoria, Canada. So they're they're also in British Columbia. And they have a group of hummingbird banders that work across British Columbia. And the hummingbird banders were able to help us collect uh, fecal pellets as well as um, colloquial fluid, um, commonly known as hummingbird pea. And so because they're handling the birds in order to band them, at a variety of sites throughout British Columbia. So we were able to work with them, and uh, they're really important in not only collecting the sample scores, but collecting a long term data set on the uh, return rate for the hummingbirds at different locations throughout British Columbia.
0: Thank you. Dr. Bishop, when was the decline first observed? Well,
1: we've been using. Um, Across the United States and Canada volunteers to do what's called the breeding bird survey route and they do these routes in May and June of each year and uh, they're driving approximately 50 miles and making stops every 800 meters and they've been tracking the bird populations for us since uh, 1966 and so we're able to analyze that data set to look from 1966 through to 2013 to see what was happening. And what we found was that for the rufous hummingbird, we have a decline that's occurring about 2% a year. So that adds up to, you know, almost 60% uh, since the breeding bird survey was initiated. And what's interesting about that is that the uh, there was an initial decline sort of in the um, – sort of late 70s, and it's been a steady decline since then. It hasn't been extremely drastic in any particular year. It's just been a steady decline and hasn't shown any increases for the rufous hummingbird during that
0: time. What are the stressors for the rufous hummingbirds as well as for Anna's hummingbirds? Well, rufous hummingbirds are a species
1: that migrate from Western Mexico where they spend the winter, And they will migrate all the way up to and breed in Alaska. So for a bird their size, they travel further than any other bird in the world on their migratory route. So they have a long way to go, even if they come just to British Columbia. That's still a long distance for a bird that weighs slightly less than a nickel. And when they're migrating, it's pretty early in the season. Usually they're coming through into British Columbia in early March, April, and it can still be pretty cold and wet here. And that's the kind of conditions that they tend to face as they migrate further north. And they're migrating mostly in the low valleys uh, because that would be the, where it would be warmest in the early spring. And so in that uh, quarter that they're actually migrating through, they're migrating through areas that are um, heavily urbanized, also a lot of agriculture and they're dependent on wildflowers that are blooming at the right time when they're coming through for migration. So first of all, there has to be wildflowers there. So if anything is impacting the occurrence of wildflowers, uh, that could be direct habitat destruction, or it could be, say, an overpopulation of deer or elk where they really like to eat wildflowers. It could be um, replacement of... The natural wildflowers with a uh, non-native species that blooms at the wrong time. Um, a good example of that is a um, species known as salmonberry. And uh, um, rufus hummingbirds really depend on that uh, to bloom as they move further north. So I know that here in British Columbia, as soon as you see salmonberry bloom in March, within 24 hours you're going to see a rufus hummingbird around. Uh, that's how closely they track it, but that particular species is being pushed out by an invasive species known as Himalaya blackberry, and that species doesn't bloom for another couple of months so when the salmonberry get replaced by this um, this blackberry, then there's nothing there for the birds as they migrate so those are the kinds of things that can change for the birds, and we also know that um some of the pesticides that we're looking at uh They can uh, persist from one year to the next, even in the flowers that might be blooming that they're uh, depending on if they're using an agricultural area. So they could be picking up um, pesticides as well. And at this stage, we know that there's pesticides in the hummingbirds uh, based on what we're measuring in their pee and their poop. Uh, What we don't know yet is whether or not it has a um, direct health effect on them.
0: Can you talk about the actual study what happened with the study? Can you talk about the crops that were studied and the region?
1: Yeah, here in the um the work that we're doing is um near Vancouver, but what we call the Fraser Valley. So from Vancouver going you know, up and following the Fraser River um estuary and this valley is you know, is urbanized but also a huge proportion of it is also um agriculture and one of the important cash crops in that area is uh is berry production, and specifically in our research, we are looking at uh potential exposure for the birds besides blueberry crops. so what we did was uh we had study sites that were right beside uh, a blueberry field, so we you know from where we were trapping the birds we could you know walk over to the blueberry field. So within 250 meters of a blueberry field. And we also had reference sites that were further away, about a kilometer away from blueberry fields. And then we had some reference sites that were in watersheds where there was no blueberry fields. And what we found was that um, the birds that were living next door to the blueberry fields were definitely picking up the pesticide and passing them out into their urine. And, We also found that uh, the ones that were a kilometer away, but still in the Fraser Valley, some of them had detectable pesticides in them, but the ones that were living in watershed where there was no berry fields, we had no detectable levels of neonicotinoid pesticides.
0: A question that Tom Theobald had was, the annual breeding bird survey shows that between 1966 and 2013, the rufous population on the Pacific coast dropped an average of 2.67% per year. The survey says the allens and broad-tailed hummingbirds were also in decline. He'd like to know if they have the percent declines year by year, and his suspicion is that they rise as the neonicotinoids come into use. If so, is that good evidence of the damage that they cause from an unexpected source?
1: Well, the, the analysis that we did looked at um, the average decline over time, but um, if you key, start, if you want to look at the trends, and you can actually see the graphs, you can just key in uh, breeding bird survey routes, Canada, United States, and hummingbirds, and you'll get to a website where you can actually look at the same graphs that we're using Um, the track trends. And so you can see that this decline is pretty steady, as I mentioned, around 2% a year. So it hasn't happened just overnight. And secondly, you also see that the decline started to occur uh, before the introduction of neonicotinoid pesticides in the 1990s. And what's important about that is that... uh, when you have a, a species that might be stressed for one reason or another, some of the things I mentioned earlier, then you add pesticides on top of it. That may be, you know, a, a multi-stressor situation that you know is not necessarily healthy for the population in the long term. We don't know. It doesn't mean that neonicotinoids are the only potential problem for the birds. It means that it may be one of the multiple stressors. And as I said. There wasn't necessarily a drop as soon as these types of pesticides were introduced.
0: Thank you. In regards to the study, how long is it going to continue? We
1: started in 2015 uh, to set up our study sites around agricultural areas, and the first couple of years have been a uh, pilot. So what we want to do is look at these sites now that we've established them for about another five years, and the questions that we want to ask are whether or not the birds that live around agricultural areas are they returning from their migration at the same rate? And what is their survivorship from one year to the next compared to sites with better quality habitat and potentially cleaner um, in terms of pesticide exposure? So we'll be able to do that once we have more information about what the birds are doing in agricultural areas. And uh, what we did find. Uh, when we started working with the um, hummingbird banders and is that, there's you know, when people do banding, they often are choosing sites that are, you know, better quality habitat because they want to catch birds and, and um, track the populations in the best case scenario. So when we set up this study, this is the first of its kind where we're actually looking at hummingbirds around agricultural areas. So that means that we have to look at sort of a, a reasonable sample size to, understand how many birds are in the area and how they're returning from one year to the next in these agricultural areas.
0: Earlier you mentioned that there were some species that were increasing as these species were decreasing. Could you explain why that might be happening? Yeah, that's the
1: really interesting question within this data set is that uh, you have species in Canada and the United States they're actually increasing in occurrence extending their geographic range. There's several species of hummingbirds in British Columbia and they're all increasing in occurrence. The anus hummingbirds, calliope, the um Black-chain hummingbird, but the species that you know is declining is the rufus hummingbird and the anus hummingbird is and the Ruther hummingbirds have, they overlap in their geographic range through California, Oregon and now in British Columbia. So rivers and Anna's hummingbirds have always, you know, been in the same area. Anna's hummingbirds are extending their range into Canada, probably because of um more temperate uh winters that we're getting over time. And the Hummingbirds are amazing in the sense that they are able to Live in a colder climate. They can start breeding as early as November here in Canada. Um, they have multiple clutches. There. Whereas the rufous hummingbirds are doing a long migration distance, they have to find food all different locations as they're moving through the migration, and they only produce one or two clutches a year. So um, even though they've always overlapped in the current, um, when you have uh, other species that might potentially be uh, able to withstand colder winters. Um, if you're both being pesticide exposed, because Anna's hummingbirds are also uh, being exposed to pesticides, we found that um, you've got multiple stresses on the Rufus hummingbird, as well as now a species that might be able to withstand the colder winters. So um, we don't know what that interaction is going to be um in the long term for the rufous hummingbird. But uh we also know that um there's species in the interior like the and the black chins here in Canada and um even the Ruby-throated hummingbird, which is an eastern species that uh is also increasing in occurrence. The hummingbirds are, you know, a group uh, they're a group of birds that are so completely different than every other bird in North America. They you know they have incredibly high metabolic rate. You know, their 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 um, resting heart rate is two hundred fifty beats a minute. Um, where they're actually flying it's about twelve hundred beats a minute. Uh, so they this is another reason that we're interested in the potential impacts of pesticides on them because uh they just have such a high metabolic rate, um they and they're really living on a nice edge all the time. And so, yeah, you know, we'd like to know more about uh whether or not these pesticides have an impact on them. When we compare that to other species of birds, we know that these might be the most sensitive. And you do get a variety, uh, even within a bird family, you can get uh, variation in sensitivity. So you've got the rupus hummingbirds, they're showing declines, other species are showing an increase. But even within the hummingbirds, we potentially could have different sensitivities to different types of stressors, including pesticides.
0: Do you think the fact that the honeybee decline due to the pesticide use is also a factor? Because from what I understand, hummingbirds also do consume insects for food.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, hummingbirds, yeah, they consume nectar and also insects, and they particularly feed insects to their young because it's a high-protein diet for uh, growing the hummingbird. And... Um, the similarities between the honey humi- honeybees and the hummingbirds is that they're both feeding on flowers, particularly nectar, and um, the hummingbird is kind of like our warm-blooded pollinator and the insects are more, you know, a cold-blooded pollinator. So, as hummingbirds migrate through these valleys um, from the south to the north, uh, early in the spring when... Some of the insects are not going to be as active. They could be an important pollinator and picking up the potentially picking up pesticides from the nectar and also from the insects that they might be eating. But uh, I, I, I'm not sure. But I, I think that their exposure might be uh, potentially higher in nectar because if you've got a sprayed situation, there's not going to be that many insects around in in an agricultural field because insecticides have been used. Um, Whereas what we know from the work that we did is that the neonicotinoids can actually persist in the flowers from one year to the next. And so when the flowers are blooming, they could be picking up uh, some contamination from from the flowers. They could be be picking up um, the contamination the nectar um, whereas in these livery fields, um, because of these insecticides there might not be as many insects to potentially be exposed to.
0: Thank you. Dr. Bishop, I just want to say thank you so much. Your research is so incredibly important and also what you said about these wildflowers. There's been a very big effort to do all these plant bombs where they're, they're planting wildflowers that are not necessarily native species, but what they deem to be pollinator-friendly species, and it doesn't do anything as far as contaminated water sources or or soil. I mean, the bottom line is everything can look pretty, but if the food is poisonous, it's, you know, these animals are going to die.
1: Well, there's a combination factor there. I think that, I mean, you're on to, you know, a good point. Okay, well, um, what's interesting about neonicotinoid insecticides that are quite different than a lot of pesticides that have been used in the past is that they are beautifully engineered in the sense that they are in the soil and they're taken up by the plant and then when insects bite into the plant like sucking insects particularly ones that attack berries and berry plants when sucking insects attack the plant the pesticide is there in the plant the whole time so it's not just go through the field spray the stuff lays on the, the leaves, and then when it rains, it eventually gets washed off. These are internal to the plant so that when the sucking insect bites into the plant, the insect is immediately, you know, poisoned. So what when you're dealing with uh, potential drift of neonicotinoid pesticides, if they're coming off the field at all through runoff or... Um, killing off the seed dressings which is just basically a dust that goes on the seed or running off in the soil is that there's potential for contamination of waterways and also the plants that grow in those waterways or nearby so when you're talking about wildflowers off-site they potentially could be um, absorbing the neonicotinoids and then animals and plants that feed on them can be exposed so that's uh, the question that we have as well as toxicologists. So the, are the animals that we're studying being exposed on the crop or are we being exposed off the crop if there's runoff and that sort of thing? And the other interesting aspects of neonicotinoids, which I don't think a lot of people are aware of, is that there's flea medications that people put on their animals that uh, have imidacloprid in them. It's a neonicotinoid works really well in the sense that you know you dab that on between the shoulder blades it absorbs through the skin when a biting insect comes along for example a flea bites the dog or cat that's what kills the flea but then when the dog or cat goes outside and pees wherever um, when it rains that can eventually be run off into water courses and eventually into um, you know these compounds are being measured in sewage treatment plant um, as well, and uh, it's not just coming from agriculture. It's potentially coming from flea medications. So there are some flea medications that do contain these compounds. So there's more than just exposure to the agricultural system. They're also used in greenhouses. They're also potentially can be used in forestry.
0: Thank you. With regard to the flea medication. I actually had a very tough decision because my cat had fleas and she was infested, and it was very tough, but I actually found something called Revolution, which does not use neonicotinoids, and that's what I, thank God I found that, but I I had a really tough decision because I knew she had, and I let her out, not thinking anything of it. No, She'd been in and out of the house, but it was really tough because the fleas were bad, and I found revolution, thank goodness, but it was is very tough. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to discuss your research with our listeners. Is there any way that we can learn more about your research and if any of the listeners want to support your research?
1: Yeah, our collaborator, the Rocky Point Bird Observatory in Victoria, Canada, have a project called the Hummingbird Project, and they are the banders that are helping us collect these samples so if you'd like to support them they're a nonprofit society and um, I'm sure they'd like to hear from you.
0: Thank you Dr. Bishop and folks if you'd like to learn more this information will be available in the companion article which will be published on theorganicview.com. Thank you for tuning in this has been June Steuer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.